And the Oscar goes to Mr. Tarantino. Hey, hey, welcome to the podcast where we take a quick swig of medicine from the limitless depths of pop fiction, literary fiction, visual art, music, movies, poetry, any artistic creation, and we feel all the better for it. My name is Nate Hammond. You are listening to Tonic Pop. My number three is uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <clears throat> Might not even be on a lot of people's top five, but uh, I loved Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, <clears throat> I I didn't see it straight away, so uh, I it was one of those movies like I wanted to see it as soon as it came out, but mm. just didn't happen. And then I ended up um, I did see it at the big screen though, and I saw it a couple times in the end. Um, but I just I loved the way he filmed it and i think it goes back to what we were talking about before like you know like a lot of people say that movie was too long and they could have it cut was long yeah yeah and they could have cut like you know a bunch out of it but i for me i i feel like it was so intentional like i feel like the whole movie um tells a story and i would hate to choose what to cut out of that movie um yeah, what, I did, think, um, what did what's his name say about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood at the Golden Globes? Ricky Gervais. Oh, yeah, I, can't, yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah, something about Leonardo DiCaprio went to the premiere of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and by the time it finished, his date was too old for him. <laughs> yeah. That's right. I did hear that. <laughs> but yeah, no, I thought him and Brad Pitt were perfect together as a duo. Um, I I actually really enjoy the slow burning nature of the movie and just how it tells the story. Like, it 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 builds, um, I guess towards the ending, but it, it's it's also you know like he intended it to be a slice of Hollywood back in, you know, whenever it was set. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're showing Leonardo DiCaprio's character. Um you know, who's transitioning from TV show, like he was a TV yeah, star yeah. Yep. and trying to transition into movies, you know, and he's, and, and, and into a different era as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's struggling with it. And, um, you know, I feel like the movie is kind of telling that story. And then I, f- I, f- I just really like the character development that they put into it of, of both of those characters. Um, and just telling telling that story, it's got some fun stuff in it too, like the scene with Bruce Lee. I thought, was yeah. Hilarious. What did you think about that? You and yeah, I know that's been a little bit of controversy controversy over yeah, that. His daughter um, did not like that idea. Apparently, Bruce yeah. Lee's daughter apparently. So. Oh, well, the funny thing is too, like Tarantino's a huge Bruce Lee fan, hmm. so yeah, I I think it's like just when I heard, what the hell. Sorry, hang on. <laughs> uh, an ad just popped up. In my <laughs> Sorry, okay. Silence. Silence. You. Fiend. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I liked it. I, I think it was just, I don't know. I think it was just played for laughs. I think it's the, yeah, I thought so too. Like well, me as a Bruce Lee fan, I, yeah. I didn't take it as him saying that that's really what Bruce Lee was like. Yeah, you know, yeah. that he was all show and yeah. no. I think it's just, it's just calling out the like typically what you expect from someone like that, mm. and and it's just yeah. But yeah, but it's also showing Cliff Booth's character as. Is part it of the is. Point. And again, no one, like I said, with Quentin Tarantino, nobody is idealized. Not even no. Bruce Lee. And Bruce Lee has become yeah. this idealized icon yeah. where he can do no wrong. He's this, you know, character that. And that was the one unfortunate thing with Bruce Lee's films, which I guess as he, you know, if he'd been able to live a little bit longer, he would have allowed himself, I think, to develop as an actor a bit more and yeah. maybe the screenplays would have been adapted to allow him to be beaten every once in a while and then, then to rise up and, you know, rock yeah, styles. Yeah. And, um, even Jackie Chan styles, he gets beaten about a bit sometimes yeah. and he has to find his way up from the muck and, you know, and so there's inspiration in that in, in the form. Yeah. Um, and so I guess he was just sort of playing on that idea that mostly yeah. had been in Hollywood was this untouchable yeah. character in all his films and so he'd use that and he kind of yeah true i don't know if it was kind of parody in a way or what what you'd call yeah. it but it was it was kind of a parody of a, of a bruce lee film i guess like in that one little scene yeah where you know they had a fight but he flipped it like we said like he flips things right yeah so he that's does this exactly thing. right yeah. yeah 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 
So Bruce Lee, we it's never, kind of we foretelling never the same fight in tournaments or anything like that. It was yeah. all on film. Where we saw Bruce Lee fight was on film. Yeah, generally, like you can find some a few videos of demonstrations and stuff. Yeah, you know, and I love Bruce Lee, and I'm a Bruce Lee fan, and yeah. so is Tarantino, as you said, and so are you. But yeah, I found nothing wrong with it. Just you know, me neither. It's, it's just film, and, and yeah. I, I feel like they like I think he played his. Like the the character that he had of Bruce Lee was was a little bit of a character of Bruce Lee as well. Mm. Like he was he was, so. a, he was a cocky guy, Come over on. the top yeah, version yeah. of Bruce yeah. Lee. Yeah, like he was a bit like that, but he was in this he was even more like you know they accentuated all those things yeah. I think and made it even so more. So he was almost like a caricature of Bruce yeah. Lee. Yeah, more than the actual Bruce. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so yeah, I think it was just I think it was just a bit of fun. I, but it was so funny. Like the scene was. It was funny, and Bruce Lee didn't get beat up or anything like that. No. That's what I expected when I went to watch it. Yeah. What everyone had nah. said. But no, it was just like a. It just showed. And, sort of, yeah, and the mm. point was that Cliff Booth was the kind of guy who doesn't muck around. He just straight to the point. Yeah. And that's what he did. And, you know, like he just threw him against the car. That was it. <laughs> yeah. He just used his strength and, yeah. Yeah. Who was like, uh, um, I think Jet Lee has always said, like, you know, you know, as as good as he is at martial arts, like he'd he'd like he'd hate to be put up against you know someone huge and who could just yeah, punch yeah. and like knock him. <laughs> yeah, did he I can't remember the quote, but like uh, yeah, I've, I've, he's basically just saying about, like, like if a boxer could learn how to defend against my kicks or something like that, then yeah, yeah, I can't remember the full saying too, but it's something like that. It's a good saying though. It's just like you know he's he's just admitting that like he's not uh, you know he's not. Invincible, just because mm. he knows, because he's awesome at martial because yeah. <laughs> he is awesome. But um, he had some of the same players as he often does, some of the same actors returning. Yeah. Uh, Michael Madsen, he loves him, so he came back. Um, yeah. He played the sheriff. Um, yeah. So, you know, he, he makes little appearances in Tarantino's films. Kurt Russell snuck in there as Randy. Yeah, um, Reynolds, Reynolds was supposed, was supposed to play to him, that's and right, then that's he right. died. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. and then bad. they and Bruce Dern, who was you know obviously friends with Bruce Reynolds. Yeah, but um, I think yeah, because apparently he was a bit unsure about mm. taking it because you know yeah, out of respect. Luke Perry, it was one of his last oh, roles. Oh yes, right. yeah, 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 yep. Yeah, I was thinking Burt Reynolds' last role. No, Luke Perry, just before it must be just before it he must died. have just been before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they must have filmed it a fair while ago. When did Luke Perry die? I just I thought. Actually, it was only last year, wasn't it? I think it was 2019, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I feel like it was way before the movie came out. Mm. Like, um, like you're almost surprised to see him in it. I remember I was kind of like, oh, Yeah, I was surprised wow. to see him in it. Yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, so, so quite a few Yeah, he died in March 2019. Great supporting cast, as he always does. He always creates great ensembles. And, yeah. You know, so like, even though we talk about how he likes to pull from obscurity... I also like the idea that he pulls these legendary actors and puts them together as he did here with um with Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, and oh, the Brett Brad Pitt, sorry. So he put Leo and Brad together. Like I don't know, there's something fun about that where you've got these two Hollywood legends. Yeah. And we get to be we have seen them from the beginning. Yeah. Because they're kind of around our age, just well, Brad Pitt's older than me. Um, Leonardo's about my age or something, or a little bit younger, maybe just a little bit older than you, Old, I guess. A little bit older than me. But, you know, it's roughly around my age, yeah. Generation, anyway. Um, and so we've kind of seen them. We've grown up with them. Yeah. And so when you think of Hollywood legends, you might think of Golden Age, and, you know, um, you might think of, like, the Burt Reynolds or whatever. But, yeah. But now we do have Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio in that echelon. Yeah, and so it's really cool to see those two put together to be a team yeah, on screen. Yeah. That's big, and and I loved it. Yeah, they really played um, mm. off each other really well. I love Brad Brad Pitt's performance. Like he's so, he kind of almost underacts the part. Like he's just he does, yeah. he's just so st- mellow and like uh, mellow and stoic. He's stoic, just, yeah, yeah, that's the word I was trying to think of. Mm. Um, it's just perfect for the role he's playing. Nothing, you know, the stunt. Nothing phases him. Yeah, Not nothing phases him. Yeah. He doesn't care about the fame. He's he's happy to be Leonardo's, you know, like wingman kind of thing. Like, mm. and um, and kind of, you know, like, like recognizes the fact that he's there because he's because mm. of Leonardo DiCaprio, and then 
you know, and he's happy to be there. There's with a them. contrast there because it's showing, as you said before, Leonardo DiCaprio, you sort of seen him, you're seeing him deal with a changeover because this is yeah. a time where now it's different where you can go from film to TV and TV to film and actually going from film to TV is a, no, a, a noble thing like or a, mm. a big, it's actually big money for you. Yeah. You know, with streaming yeah. and all that yeah. sort of stuff. <laughs> but back in their day, when you went from film to TV, that was a step down. Yeah. You would graduate from TV to film, not vice versa. Yeah. And so, yeah, and so, or, or go overseas. Yeah, to, yeah. Like, you know, like you're a rugby player at the end of your, yeah. you know, the end of your lifespan, you go overseas to play or whatever. And so, mm. That happened with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character. You know, he was a almost a a list. He was kind of an a list, but just sort of toe in the water a list. Yeah, is that yeah. Right? yeah. Is that how you saw I think it? so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was never like super big. He could walk down the street often, but then some people would recognize him and then yeah. be fan. But it wasn't like a like a Beatles sort of. Like he was style. like specifically really famous. But yes. Yeah. Very for, a first... role, for a particular role. Yeah. Oh, you are the what? Yeah, yeah. They knew him from that role. And so, yeah, and so he had to struggle with his fame waning. Mm. And so Brad Pitt got to be that rock. Yes. You know, and, and almost contrast to the way he was falling apart at times. Yeah. The way Leo was falling apart and Brad was just like, yeah, you know, he'd lost it all. He wasn't, um, <laughs> no one was giving him a job. And so he'd gone from being a high-end stunt actor yeah. to being a, um, what was he, like just a, I guess, a driver and a runabout. Yeah, took, yeah. Yeah, took care of. Leo's house or whatever. Right hand man. A runabout (laughs) man. Yeah. So, yeah. So, there we go. Hmm. Yeah. And I love, uh, I mean, DiCaprio, I think, acts so well in this movie with, you know, he's playing, like he's, he's playing a character who's this, um, I was almost going to say Calvin Candy. Um, (laughs) He's playing Rick Dalton, Mm. you know, but then Rick Dalton's also acting Acting. in things in the movie. And I think, he does that so well. Like there's these layers, you know, like, like he's playing this character while he's playing another character. So he's, he's acting in these roles as if he was Rick Dalton. Yeah. And I think he does that really well. Really well. Like, like you believe, you believe that he's Rick Dalton playing those characters. And, um, yeah. I, yeah. No, I got, I know exactly what you mean. There was a standout scene when he's sitting talking to that young that girl. <laughs> yeah. Or the young girl. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and she's kind of like, pull yourself together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he gets huh. all emotional. <laughs> well, it did quite well at the I'm box sorry. office, as all of Tarantino's films do. Um, yeah. It is opening weekend. It took in $41 million. Production budget was 90 so it almost made half back just in its opening weekend. Yeah. Uh, I can't see where it, what it actually... I think 142 so it made its money back if i'm quoting this right if i'm reading this right anyway so so yeah it did, it did okay but yeah like you said it was it was one of those films though that you had to really be patient with yeah um, I, I, I i expected more like from the being told a little bit about the story or reading a little bit about it i actually expected more from the madsen side of it the story yeah yeah i i think i did too um mm. but but yeah but i didn't mind you know that, that there was just bits and pieces, and then that was the end yeah, scene. Yeah. Was all about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, which, so, was a, which was a great end scene. But yeah, I just think my ex- expectations of what I was supposed to be watching was more about met, the Manson family, but not my expectations of how good it would be. So I mean, yeah, yeah, I, I just had to change my idea of what, yeah, I was supposed to be watching. Yeah. I love the end scene as well. Like, uh, spoiler alert for people that haven't watched it, don't listen. <laughs> But um, I love the end scene, and I love that he does that revisionist, you know, um, because he ties it into his characters, and you know, it's all. I mean, it, again, it comes back to, you know, I I feel like it comes full circle, and at the end of the movie, when Sharon when Sharon Tate invites Rick Dalton up back up to the house, you know, who's who she's married to, um, oh jeez, what's his name? Uh, Roman Polanski. Roman Polanski. Um, you know, like that's him being accepted into mm. back into Hollywood and into so, film yeah, and like Hollywood you know society. like yeah. it's showing he's made it he's yeah. made it now and and that's the confidence I think that mass, he needs it took a massacre it took a massacre yeah. <laughs> um, and, and that's just like that's a little bit of a you know Tarantino taste at the end and it, yeah it was but again you know we're talking about like everything is purposeful right and just think of how 
that last death occurred, it was with a movie prop. The flamethrower? Yeah, 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 yeah. I love it. Because, and he, like, he gets his confidence. Like, mm. that's the whole thing about it. Like, I, you know, that's why I think, I think it's all, a, like, it's about his character. It's yeah, about, yeah. the whole movie, I think, is about his development as a person yeah. and his character. It's yeah. his character. Mm. And, you know, like, when he gets that flamethrower out, he's mm. like, it's almost like he's got his, like, he gets that confidence yeah. when he, you know, I mean. And do you, so, so the flamethrower was an, a prop from a movie, yeah. right? And he talked about it before. Yeah. And then. Because he was. Putting it on. He, I'm wondering like, if like he's putting it on and then he's that character again yeah, in, the, yeah. in the film, you know? Yeah. And then he gets to. It's like he's putting on this, I don't know, like a mask a armor. Mask. Type, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and that gives him, the, yeah. Give okay. him the confidence to do what he did. He wasn't. Yeah. But it's just such a, I don't know, it's, it's such a funny kind of ending it was it was because he did um, it so unflinchingly almost like when he put he was like holy crap what's going on and then he puts <laughs> that on and then suddenly he's, a, he's transformed yeah so i think that yeah. was great character development i mean you didn't see a lot of character development from brad pitt you didn't didn't want that that wasn't what they were going no for. it was just a rock you didn't need to the yeah whole time it's just a rock he and was there the for end, even though he's an important character he was there for rick to dalton. stabilize rick dalton yeah. and and by the end you know he just sort of walks out whatever yeah nothing phases him <laughs> <laughs> yeah, super stoic, but he didn't need the character development, but, but Rick Dalton did. Yeah, and uh, it was well done too. So yeah, no, I, I loved Once Upon a Time in Hollywood too. Mm. I mean, all of this, like he's he's done ten movies, and so to choose a top five, yeah, shucks, man, they're all they're all on the top. Of, you know, when you look at say Rotten Tomatoes or IMBD, and they're all just well received. Yeah, they're all like was... and and commercial success. Yeah, 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 that's yeah. it. Hmm. Yeah. All right, my number three is that we're up to yeah. Number yeah. three is Quentin Tarantino's first his directorial debut, Reservoir Dogs, nineteen ninety two Reservoir Dogs. Nice. It had nice. Uh, it's got a nice ninety two percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, yeah. It is. It's intelligent. It's effervescent and energetic. I guess it's like an energy drink of movies. It's just, it's smart, witty, stylistic. It's, um, I guess it's Quentin saying, here I am. It was his announcement. Yeah. You know, uh, and here I am unapologetically, yeah. uh, you know, this is my, me and my naked glory. This is who I am. This is what I'm going to be doing for the next 20 years, uh, you know, or 30 years, 30 years, I should say. Yeah. So I'm going to put out 10 movies you know, like this, yeah. Like this is an idea. You know, I guess it's what it's what. No, I don't guess it is what Quentin Tarantino. It brought Quentin out of obscurity. So, like you said, he'd done a little bit of writing and and yeah. stuff like that. But uh, he pulled together to make his vision happen. He pulled together another incredible cast. Amazing cast for like yeah. a for for a no debut, name director. Yeah, Harvey Keitel. Um, you know, it's again, always awesome. Yeah, yeah, and so Michael Madsen, of course, uh, talked about his name has been dropped quite a few times mm. in some of these movies that we've talked about. So he, he kind of like, I guess, Samuel L. Jackson, but he's just a smaller role. Um, not in this film, but in a lot of other films, he's kind of uh, he's always a supporting actor, but he's that face that you know, yeah, but you may not, and you'd recognize him on the street, but yeah, you, you might struggle to might not know his, his name, name again. yeah, yeah. Um, so if you if we right now you're listening to this and going Michael Madsen, sounds familiar. You look <laughs> if you yeah type in Michael Madsen S E N and you'll go oh that's Michael that Madsen. guy right <laughs> yeah he is on a lot of Quentin Tarantino films you're right um, Chris Pan Tim Roth Tim Roth yeah, yeah. Uh, Tim Roth and Christoph Waltz I find them to be very similar yeah in, um, yep. yeah you know in abilities in in even in acting in acting hey, abilities, Tim I mean, Roth is yeah he's great he's and even in looks you know I'd, I'd probably say like yeah true I, I might even have a moment of hesitation if i saw one of them on the street you know just to make sure i didn't compliment the wrong uh, person, the wrong person <laughs> on, the, on the wrong movie you know but like, oh tim i loved you in django i loved you in django yeah. <laughs> and inglorious yeah. <laughs> christoph i loved you in planet of the apes <laughs> the marky mark one of course yeah the best one yeah <laughs> The Marky Mark version. Marky Mark and Matt Damon, they get... I almost forgot about them. Yeah, yeah. I know, right? Like, that was such... And, you know, and there was Tim Burton, too. Blinking heck, I had high expectations for it. Yeah. I didn't think it was as bad as everyone made out to be. And I, you, I, 
No, I remember enjoying it at I the enjoyed, time. I yeah. actually enjoyed it. Um, but it gets been, a lot of flack now. Surpassed. But Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Those new Planet of the Apes movies. Yeah, the new Planet of the Apes are incredible out of this world. They just stomp all over that. Mm. You know, that makes it look like a piece of crap. But it wasn't. It was, it was decent. And But, um, but yeah, Tim Roth was, was really good in, in Planet of the Apes. And, mm. um, uh, yeah, but Mark and Mark and Matt Damon, they're two also like... They get, mixed get up confused the there, yeah. They, they, they tell people that... Um, I've, I've heard them say in interviews that people will often come up and confuse them and yeah. ask for an autograph. And so they've made a deal with each other that if that happens, they're, they're just, just going to give the other person's autograph. Nice. Like so Mark and Mark will, Mark Wahlberg, I should say, will sign Matt Damon and Matt Damon will sign Mark Wahlberg or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they're white, so you can say that, but you can't muck, muck up two <laughs> black actors. Um, well, that's racist, all right? Um, remember that guy that did it with uh, Samuel L. Jackson? Oh, he yeah. He was like, oh, I loved you on The Matrix. He's like, what are you talking about? You think all those black people look the same? And I was like, no. Um, but yeah, no, honest mistake. Which I is think. funny because, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which is funny. But yeah, I, but I can imagine getting Christoph and uh, Tim Roth. They just, I don't know, something similar. Yeah. Similar maybe build or look or maybe similar age. But um, anyway, but Tim, he's another Quentin Tarantino darling. Uh, he's been picked for mm. a few Hateful Eight, Four Rooms, Pulp Fiction. Um, so he's been on, so those three plus that one, so four. He's been on four of Quentin Tarantino's movies. Yeah, I think I think that's it. There's the four off the top of my head. Uh, I can't think of any more. Yeah, yeah, but he's great. I, I, yeah, I like Tim Roth. Um, the film, I've, I've heard it. It's been called noir, but I don't know if it is quite fitting of that description the characters are a bit too colorful um even in their names what's that i said even in their names yeah, oh even in the names there we go yes <laughs> that's a good actually pun yes um but uh the the characters were too colorful maybe also noir films have i know he does draw from from these old noir films yeah. and gangster gangster noir films but in these older gangster noir films you find um there's a lot more, I guess, isolation, character isolation, a feeling of loneliness from character to character. The main character always, you know, walking through the streets yeah. in the rain and just feeling very isolated from the city and the world around them. There's a little bit of that, but but he creates these ensembles that are interdependent, you know, and they they have to rely on each other. So I don't think it quite fits noir um, in that way. Uh, but it doesn't matter so much what you call it, what genre you want to call it, because Quentin Tarantino doesn't really... It's not someone you can pigeonhole anyway. Um, he's genre-twisting, no. he's a genre-bending, genre-snapping-in-half dude. Uh, yeah, have you got... Oh, I don't want to ask you if you've got Reservoir Dogs coming up. Have you got something to say? <laughs> um, yeah, like it's, like, it's a really small movie in terms mm. of... Scope? Scope, yeah. And, like, there's not a lot... like. Not a lot of people in it. Mm. Um, like, what an introduction to Tarantino. Yeah. You know, just saying, hey, here I am. Mm. This is my style. And, um, yeah, it's. I think it's a very clever movie, especially yeah. for being one, like I was saying, with not, you know, not a, not a big scope movie. Like, it doesn't have a lot of mm. um, scenery and, you know, all that kind of stuff. You don't want it to be a big movie. Though. No. You need it to be tight like that. Yeah, well, other, it wouldn't work if it was yeah. wasn't um, the way he wrote it. And when it's not, when you're not relying on that, and you're not making it too big, you can focus on the dialogue and mm. the character interplay. You know. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's it's more fun. I, I like that. I, I I think Quentin Tarantino is a really good writer, and so I love just listening to characters' the dialogue. dialogue. Yeah. And yeah. in, in all of his movies. Yeah, but he has you wondering what's going on and, you know, like it's, yeah, great acting as well. Like from, you know, I think uh, with the type movie like that, you need you need to have everyone kind of mm. on point. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. And mm. um, Something that he doesn't throw in, and, and this is the same with actually quite a, a few of his films, is that it's not cliche to a lot of films and film writing as they say, okay, you've got to have sort of satisfying redemption. You've got to have this this hope that you build to that ultimately gets resolved. Um, but sometimes there's a little bit of, it leaves you hanging a little bit. Mm. It's not ultimate resolve. Yeah. Maybe a little bit resolved. Maybe one of the character gets to, or the other characters sitting there scratching their heads, what just happened or, you know, but there's not just like a tidy bow wrapped around everything. 
Um, Christopher Nolan does the same thing. Um, and this just comes with not being a cliche writer, I guess. Yeah. Quentin Tarantino isn't. Uh, tidy <laughs> chronology, nope. You know, that's, that's <laughs> another, I guess that's another trait of his. Yeah. Is that he doesn't, you know, his chronology is, is never... It's it's never it's never just sequential. It's not it's that never not that simple. Yeah. Say, yeah, yeah. It's not just simple. Yeah, chronological mm. order. Mm. Um, but yeah, but he does know how to lay, um, and, and he proved it in this with his, with his introduction to the film world. He does, he knows how to sort of lay the classical or I should say like a sturdy foundation for the film. So all the elements mm. are there to to create the best foundation that you can have, and then he just builds up whatever style he wants on top of that. And that's where it's beautiful because you get to see this really inventive creation. Whereas a lot of a lot of films, you know, the house looks the same, the rooms, maybe the rooms are in a slightly different order, maybe the the silverware is in a different drawer. But um, I don't know why I'm using a house as an as an analogy. I'm talking about building a film, I guess, from foundation. It's gone <laughs> to talking about a building a house, or whatever. But um, but yeah, but so, so he he lays a foundation with his film, and then he creates on top of it just this wacky um, place that you never want to live I, I i you know it's not a building that he, he builds with occupants in mind it's like i don't want people to live in this world and and you don't you i don't anyway i don't watch his movies and go oh i'd love to live in that world you know you might watch mary poppins you're like i love to live in that world but yeah. you would not watch one of quentin tarantino's movies and want to be a part of that world yeah. that existence you don't so it's like building a house where you don't want to actually but you do want to enter in you don't want to have a look you don't want to take photos yeah. you don't want to you want to wander around you want to visit like it's an art gallery you know what I mean? And, and 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 then come out and then go back and revisit it. Yeah, yeah. And then revisit it and revisit it. Like all of his movies are rewatchable. Yeah, yeah. You know? Um, so yeah, and so that's what he does. He goes, if I build this, you know, um, people will find this wacky architecture exciting and want to come and visit. And yeah. That's what happens. yeah. <laughs> um, we find his methods attractive. I guess we just become voyeurs into his world. In yeah, way, yeah. Rather than trying to exist in his world. Yeah. I hope that made sense. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I understand that. <laughs> I like it. Reservoir Dogs. Um, well, I've got just a couple of trivia tidbits. Yeah, So the film's budget was so low that many of the actors simply wear their own, wore their own clothes as wardrobe. Huh. Most notably, Chris Penn's track jacket. Right. Um, and the signature black suits were provided for free from by the designer. Uh, based on her love of the American crime film genre. Uh, Steve Buscemi wore his own black jeans instead of suit pants. The budget wouldn't cover police assistance for traffic control. So the scene where Steve Buscemi forces a woman into the car and drives off on Oh, it, that's right. I heard about uh, this. He, he could only do so when the traffic lights were green. So he had to work it and mm. like, actually did it <laughs> in a live traffic scene. Oh, man. It's pretty cool. Mm. international box office was pretty poor so it's it is one of those ones that is we talked about how he creates these movies cult that, classics cult classics yeah how the cult his first one cult status by being underground in the first place not breaking it big in the box mm. office but then finding life after that but how tarantino can somehow create these cult classics even though they do are big block busters, blockbusters but with this one is a true cult classic where it was made for next to nothing um, it made its money back in the box office, definitely did okay. Um, domestic box office was almost $3 million, and international box office was only 134 Anyway, the worldwide box office came to 2966248 oh. So, yeah, so almost $3 million. So, you know, nothing huge. I mean, smaller movies that have done less well have, have used $3 million for their budget you know so um this did okay i'm not sure what it actually ran on though i can't find yeah i was trying to find, find what it. the actual budget was for the movie never yeah. released it but um no i'm even looking in the numbers.com which usually has those sort of stats well i've got as it says here so i don't know how accurate this is but it says armed with thirty thousand dollars and a 16 millimeter camera quentin tarantino was all set to make the film with a bunch of friends, including his producer partner, Lawrence Bender, who was going to play nice guy Eddie. It was then that Tarantino received uh, an answer phone message from Harvey Keitel, asking if he could <clears throat> not only be in the film, but help produce it. Nice. Uh, Keitel had gotten involved via 
the wife of Bender's acting class teacher, <laughs> who had managed to get a copy of the script to him. Cartel's involvement helped raise the budget to $1.5 million. Nice. All right. So Cartel yeah. used to be really yeah, hailed cool. for his role in that then. Yeah, oh, definitely. What a, what a legend. That's oh, pretty that's, awesome. That's pretty awesome. That's really cool to hear. But yeah, so Reservoir Dogs, that's my number three, did I say? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, cool. All right, what's your number two? Oh, sorry, one more thing. Oh, you're good. Tim Roth refused to read the read for the film. He did insist on going out drinking with Quentin Tarantino and Harvey Keitel. He agreed to read for them when they were all drunk. <laughs> really? That's fine. Anyway, that was funny. I love Tim Roth, yeah. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Sounds like something you'd do. Number two. Num- number two? Oh. Mm-hmm. My number two, Django Unchained. Oh, really? Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. Nice. So I didn't name that already, did I? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, Django. Okay, okay. Um, so what do you got to add? What can I add to what we already said? Actually, one thing I was going to add, um, I know I talked about how much I loved Leonardo DiCaprio's performance mm-hmm. as Calvin Candy. Um, a lot of movie buffs probably already know this. I'm sure you already know this, but, uh, there's a scene in the movie when Calvin Candy smashes his hand mm-hmm. on the dinner table. He's having a little monologue outburst, yep. smashes his hand on the dinner table and, DiCaprio accidentally crushed a small stemmed uh, glass with the palm of his hand and actually started to bleed. Um, but he totally ignored it and stayed in character and continued with the scene. Quentin Tarantino was so impressed that he used, he used that take in the final print. Uh, and when he called cut, the room erupted in a standing ovation. DiCaprio's hand was bandaged and he suggested the idea of smearing blood onto the face of Kerry Washington. Uh, Tarantino and Washington both liked this so Tarantino got some fake blood together so in the original version that I had heard of that I thought he actually just went on with the scene and smeared his own blood but it wasn't mm. they actually which I thought was because <laughs> I always thought that sounded it was pretty weird. gross yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it wasn't that but uh, but yeah I I just think like his, like his, that scene is awesome mm. and gives you like um, I mean you can see why they used it in yeah, yeah. the final cut and think that he accidentally, like, actually, you know, smashed a glass and, like, cut his hand and just kept just kept going with, without even a flinch. Mm. Like, I think he starts wrapping up his hand and stuff. Like, he's just, yeah, just awesome. Mm. I love the thing with the KKK when they're just <laughs> arguing about, you know, their wives the making the... the uh, Look, nobody's saying they don't appreciate what Jenny did. Well, if all I had to do was cut a hole in a bag... I could have cut it better than this. What about you, Robert? Can you see? Not too good. I mean, if I don't move my head, I can see you pretty good, more or less. Um, And uh, the holes in the, you know, they come with the right, it's like a wardrobe wardrobe malfunction. And, um, that, that's what I'm talking about. So he allows so you to good. sympathize <laughs> with the KKK. They become real. They, they, they become, become real, real people. They become real p- yeah. people. And I'm not talking about sympathizing in a way that no. like, you want them to succeed. No, I'm no. not saying that. No one jumped at me for that. No. I'm just saying you get to see that there are actually real people with real wives and real yeah. children and real... Football. Like one of those, like, my, my wife slaved all night yeah. or something. To, like to make these or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my wife slaved all night to make these. <laughs> yeah, I... Like it's hard to even talk about without, you know, saying the wrong thing. Mm. But the way he does it is perfect, and he gets away with it. And mm. um, I think it's so funny. But you still, you know, you're still totally against them. But it's just, yeah. it just, yeah, it, it's just it humanizes him. But it does, at the same yeah. time, though, it's in a, it's in a mocking way. Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't doesn't justify it at doesn't all. Justify it just anything. it just humanizes them. You whole. get to kind of laugh at them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a, yeah, because you're laughing at them, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> Just no. this little argument over he's, he's the smallest thing. Again, it's the dark humor <laughs> he's, he's really good at. <laughs> Maria's like, well, you're still on the same one. <laughs> okay, so my number two. Is that what we're up to? Yeah. yeah. Number two is Inglorious Bastards. So we've nice. already talked about this a lot, so I can yep. just smash you this one really quickly. I don't think we really talked about the synopsis, but um, if I'm yeah. reading the synopsis I'll just read it straight from uh, Rotten Tomatoes it is the first year of Germany's occupation of France Allied officer Lieutenant Aldo Rain played by 
Brad Pitt, assembles a team of Jewish sol soldiers to commit violent acts of retribution against the Nazis, including taking of their scalps. He and his men joined forces... Because um, I should interject there because Brad Pitt was playing a half Native American or part Native American. That's right, so, yeah. yeah. And so he was using... Elder Apache. That. Yeah, yeah. Um, including the taking of the scalps. He and his men joined forces with Bridget von Hammersmark, a German actress and undercover agent, to bring down the leaders of the Third Reich... Their fates converge with theatre owner Shoshana Dreyfus, who seeks to avenge the Nazis' execution of her family. So um, there's basically two, well, there are multiple plot threads, like all of Tarantino's yeah, movies. Yeah, they're all twined together. And then they come together, yes. Yeah. So and this one, there's two. But it's super evocative. Um, mm -hmm. And how it, how it achieves that is by tapping into the pain of an oppressed and persecuted people, uh, which were the Jews. Right, and so Tarantino, as he does, and as we've already discussed, likes to flip and mix up narratives um, to give the oppressed power over the oppressors. So, if history—that's what he does with his revisionist history. Yeah. So, whereas you know, um, the Manson, you know, followers didn't get a, didn't get their win, and yeah, in, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and um, Django, you know, the ex-slave, he got to pretty much destroy that whole plantation yeah. <laughs> and um and here we got the jews getting one over on the nazis yeah um so we don't just and it's not just about the jews beating up on the nazis so it's no. not just a flip of that script it's also about beating up on the victim status that has been consigned to them so often when we talk about jewish history we we um we label them with the victims uh with a victim card yeah you know? But this gives an opportunity, Tarantino gives an opportunity for that to be beat down as well yeah, and, yeah. and empower them. So, as I said, there are multiple plot threads. This one has two. Uh, we, The first one, the two that we need to keep up with, the first one is focused on the Jewish-American soldiers who use guerrilla tactics to travel through Europe killing Nazis, as we said. And um, the second one, which ends up becoming... Even though it's not focused on as much throughout the film, it becomes perhaps the more important one, and that is, or the, or the main one at least, and that mm. is where we follow Shoshana, yeah, who is played by Melanie Laurent, who I spoke about before. She was the Jewish refugee who had a family killed, you know, yeah. when she was a child, um, you know. So while the IBs, the Inglorious Bastards, are running around killing bad guys, she's got a more sort of sophisticated plan. Um, she's devised more sort of, yeah. Yeah, systematic plan, yeah. I guess. You know, instead of just being sort of random and wild, and you know what I mean. Mm. So she's got this plan that is going to ultimately lead to the hopefully the downfall of the Third Reich because it's going to take out all the top leaders. Yeah, on the one one place, and then we have the two intersect. So yeah, I think um, I was just thinking when you're talking, like he does a really good job. Um, you know, some some movies really fail in that aspect, and it's it's kind of an interesting thing that doesn't happen a lot, but. You know, because the opening scene is set up, and you meet Shoshana, and then, and then he goes off that, and the main characters are kind of Brad Pitt and his group of Inglorious Bastards. You know, and then towards the end of the movie, it comes back to Shoshana again, and she kind of becomes the main actress again. Like it, it shifts. Like it's the the key characters, and I think it does it really well. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like, um, but it's yeah, of course, it's interesting because it's not. Hmm. It's not your usual kind of, you know, right way of doing something, <laughs> doing a movie. But um, yeah, but I think it works really well. And you know, the ultimate story is her story, Shoshana's yeah. story, um, because you know she's the one at the beginning and then the one at the end, and um, you know that's done really well. But yeah, it just has introduces the Inglorious Bastards into it as well, and they're kind of the whole middle meat of the movie. Um, and then, like like we said, you know, the two plots intertwine and and it culminates in, in what happens at the end. <laughs> yeah. And that story, I mean, it was, I guess you could, call, you could call it convoluted, but only when you're looking through a historical lens. But again, revisionist history yeah. allows the story that, um, I know we, we know what happens, but I think it was made in such a, it was such a, 
it was so well made that say you got rid of all the you burnt all the history books and you yeah. forgot about what actually happened and you played this in 20 years time you might think to a high school class <laughs> yeah they it was it was believable enough it was it was created in a believable enough way it wasn't so fantastical that you'd think that could never happen yeah no so um yeah so perhaps we should do that that would be Let's see what happens. Let's do an experiment. But um, yeah, so that was mine. I I don't have too much to add because we already talked about it quite a lot before. My number two, Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, cool. So I suppose when we're talking about our um, our uh, list of uh, honorable Honorable mentions, mentions. it's just everything else. (laughs) All of his other movies. (laughs) Yeah. Um. Yeah, Jackie Brown. Well, yeah, all of them. I actually Death Proof. I really like Death Proof. Death Proof. Um, didn't quite make it onto my list, but it mm. was it was close. You know, Hateful Eight actually almost made it onto my list. I just yeah. at the last second changed it. That's a hard one to describe why I liked it. To be honest, it's just yeah. I um, I actually like a lot of the characters in that. Movie. I think it was the characters. Yeah. yeah, there we go. And um, I think again, acting is superb, and mm. um, I don't like it as much for his overall story like I do his other movies and that's what yeah that's but, what um, stopped it for me I love his characters in that movie yeah. like and some of them in particular um, yeah really good mm. yeah and, and that's what it was and again like because he's such a great writer of dialogue mm. that's what sold it for me Hateful Eight was just it was yeah. just great dialogue just you know the, um, a little bit of trivia on that Apparently, oh I gotta find I have to look it up to know exactly what type of guitar it was. But did you hear about oh, yeah. the Kurt Russell thing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was devastated about that. Oh. <laughs> I, sh- I-, I better look it up quickly because I love um, Channing Tatum's carry- cameo on that. Yeah, that was that was funny. <laughs> I was not expecting him to even make an appearance. And yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so he smashed a hundred and fifty-year-old guitar. So. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see they the borrowed it, didn't they? From the yeah, so this is from billboard.com. Did you see the hateful eight? Do you remember the scene where Kurt Russell grabs a guitar from Jennifer Jason Lee and smashes it? Well, it wasn't a prop guitar, but a genuine 1870s six string on loan from the Martin Guitar Museum. And needless <laughs> to say, the Martin Guitar Museum isn't happy. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's worth um, like hundreds he, of thousands of dollars. Yeah, it? he must. Oh, he was so. De- so I mean, he Apparently thought he, he thought like it was the prop really guitar. Upset. He didn't, no, didn't realize. Yeah. No one had like been specific enough to him to say, you know. And he was having a moment. I don't. Was he? Call- I don't even know if he was called on to do it. Like, um. Oh no, he it was scripted to smash, but yeah. the replica guitar was supposed to replace the they original Martin swap just out. before the scripted smashing. However, no one had communicated this to Russell, who went yeah. ahead and unknowingly destroyed the expensive heirloom oh my gosh i think he got quite upset about it when after oh i would i'd feel sick you'd feel absolutely sick in your gut even though it wasn't (laughs) his fault ultimately you'd you'd blame yourself you'd just be like what did i miss you know but the martin guitar musician museum announces no longer loaning to movies (laughs) (laughs) um it was destroyed beyond repair wow you know what they not now? Yeah, what you got to do now? Is, yeah, frame it, frame it, and put it behind yeah, a glass yeah. frame. Oh, maybe worth more. Yeah, it could, it could be. I reckon one one day it will be. Yeah, this um, this here is the reason that the Martin Museum does not no longer <laughs> no longer loans to, to Hollywood movies. Wow. Oh, there we go. So, yeah, bit of a sad ending to that film, but mm. but I liked it. Uh, what else we got? Jackie Brown's cool. Jackie Brown's good. Um, yeah. What am I missing? I, I'm assuming we have the same number one because you haven't brought it up Must yet. Do. Yeah. It'd be pretty funny if we did. All right, all right. All right. <laughs> if we didn't. Could we not? Well, actually, I said Jackie. You could have Jackie Brown. Do you have Jackie Brown as your number one? No. Okay, then, cool. I think we've got the same number one. I think if you don't have this as your number one, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wasn't sure what you'd have as your number one. Yeah, no, so. this, is, this is definitely my number one. I actually I, was wondering if you'd have, because that's... So, you know, like reading a lot of different ones and mm. uh, quite a lot of people had, uh, well, not a lot of people, but you saw it, uh, Reservoir Dogs as mm. being another okay. one quite often. But, yeah. Me first? Yep, go for it. You're number right. one. 
my number one is four rooms. No, <laughs> it's pop fiction. Yeah, there we go. Miramax Films is proud to present one of the most celebrated motion pictures of the year. The winner of the 1994 Palme d'Or. The best picture of the Cannes Film Festival. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? Get down, get down. You got a corpse in a car, minus a head in the garage. Take me to it. Don't you hate that? Hate what? Uncomfortable silences. John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Uma Thurman, Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Amanda Plummer, Maria de Medeiros, Bing Rings, Eric Stoltz, Rosanna Arquette, Christopher Walker, and Bruce Willis. Looking at something, friend? Ain't my friend, looking. Die, you mother! A new film directed by Quentin Tarantino. You really thinking about quitting? Most definitely. Of course you're gonna do that. Basically, I'm just gonna walk the earth. What you mean walk the earth? You know, like Kane in Kung Fu. <laughs> Alright, let's do it. That's my number one too. I actually rewatched it. Um, because I was thinking I have it kind of, you know, like you think of it mm. as this awesome movie. And um I was wondering, like going into this. Would it still, because I thought, I like straight away, I was like, that's got to be my number one. Number one. Mm. And then I thought, I'll watch it again, because would it still be my number one? And um, I loved it. Yeah. So I watched it recently. And yeah, it was interesting too. I don't know. I, I, I found it, even though it's not in order, I found it really easy to follow. I don't know if it's just because I've seen it before and i think the first time it was a little bit um not off-putting but it was enough to sort of throw you a little bit and go oh what wait what's going on here because it was that person alive again (laughs) yeah so it it was unusual to watch for the first time because we had been we had tuned into these sort of like these movies that were chronological yep um you know and and i feel like at the time it was a really big deal it was was out of order it definitely was a big but i felt like watching Mm. it again recently Mm. Even though it was out of order, it still flows really nicely. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's what I found really interesting this time. Mm. Like, you can still watch it. I, I don't know. Like, it just, it still flows as a movie, which mm. is really weird because it's all out of order. Like, yeah. all the scenes, are like, well, there's really just a couple that are chucked in there that are totally, you know, out of order. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it's, I don't know. Which is it, funny because we're talking about, oh, I mentioned Underground 6 before. It, Attempts to do something similar. Oh, does it? Yeah, in in, in a way, and, and, and fails. Just, it was so, fails so badly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've got to go with Pulp Fiction too, man. Um, yeah. Quentin Tarantino created a masterpiece and his homage to disreputable genres. These uh, the things that are. I guess he is a fan of cult movies, which is what we talked about before. Uh, it was a groundbreaking movie. It was influential. It was, yeah, yeah. Um, sharing the Rotten Tomatoes critics consensus, it says. Reading verbatim, one of the most influential films of the 1990s, Pulp Fiction, is a delirious postmodern mix of neo-noir thrills, pitch black humor, and pop culture touchstones. Like his writing is so good, uh, mm. his dialogue in his movies, mm. and I think it really shines in Pulp Fiction. Like some of the dialogue in that movie is just, even when they're talking about nothing, it's so interesting. Yeah. Like, and it's, I don't know, it's just, it's just enjoyable and. You know, just from the story about the Royale with cheese to like, I don't know, when they're dancing at Jack Rabbit Slims. Like, it's just such an enjoyable movie to watch. So uh, when you say that, though, like uh, they talk about, um, okay, you say that like even when they're talking about nothing, but it's kind of like they, their nothing is actually philosophizing. And yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, it's just That's even true. when they're talking about the, the burgers. Yeah. Um, it's it's waxing philosophical about burgers. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not just plain boring. You know, what did you do on the weekend? Sort yeah, of talk. <laughs> um, nice weather. It's not small talk. It's actually they they yeah. create this whole sort of philosophical banter about a burger. Yeah, you know, it's so good. Yeah, and they keep doing it. Uh, yeah, because then 
um, Samuel L. Jackson's character brings it up later on when he's talking to someone about, and yes, he's talking yeah. about the burger. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is a tasty burger. You know what they call a quarter pounder with cheese in France? No. Tell him, Vincent. Royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. You know why they call it that? Uh, because of the metric system. Check out the big brain on bread. There's so many, yeah. Royale and, with cheese. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think, like, you're right. And, uh, like, Quentin, uh, Quentin um, Jules. And he, Jules, yeah. So, you know, he reads the scripture out before mm. he, he kills someone. What? What country are you from? What? what? What ain't no country I ever heard of. They speak English and what? What? Say what again? You read the Bible, Greg? Yes. Well, there's this passage I got memorized. Sort of fits this occasion. Ezekiel 25, 17. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children and i will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers and you will know my name is the lord when i lay my vengeance upon thee And, you know, near the end when he's explaining, like he's, he's like, I used to... Which you know is a fake scripture, yeah? You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but um, when, yeah, because he says, like he always just thought it was like a pretty badass thing to say kind mm. of thing. And, um, oh, no, he says it's like, he thought it was always like super cold, like to do that before yeah, he yeah. shot someone. But then like he's, you know, philo- like... He's philosophically looking at it at the end. He's like, now I think it actually means this. And he's like, mm. I don't know, it's like his character kind of develops through the movie. Yeah. Um, which is interesting. And so, well, when we're talking about how it's been influential, I think it changed the gangster flick. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, you know, these hardened, violent offenders. And mm. give them humanizing traits, and and yeah. let them know that you know they have they banter philosophically, they're funny, but they're <laughs> able to flip a switch, you know, like yeah. and and suddenly do their violent thing, you know, they make their point, they make their violent point, and then carry on. Yeah. But while saying that, while saying they carry on, they're not super stoic like our Brad Pitt character was, um, in a lot of these ones. They're not unflappable. They have their quirks. They have their worries. They have their fears. You know, yeah, John Travolta yeah. talking about, you know, that whole, um, that back and forth about massaging the feet, yeah. whether, it, whether yeah. it's erotic or not, <laughs> and whether he should have, you know, like that's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was so good. And then trying to get other people's opinions on it. I massaged my mother's feet. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I massaged my mother's feet. Yeah. Like that was just, so, and this is the same with all of Quentin Tarantino's films. There are no, and I might say maybe the only time I've seen it was Brad Pitt's character in his most recent, but there's no Mary Sue characters. So for those of you um, listening who aren't sure what that means, um, Mary Sue is a film term, basically an unbeatable, weakness-free character. Mm. Um, And when you insert that sort of character into a film, it can make a story really boring. You know, if you know there's there's no way they can be beaten. Yeah. But these guys, even the heroes, they have weaknesses. You know, um, and you don't know who's going to survive. You don't who's know gonna who's going to survive. Yeah, gonna, yeah, or what's going to happen to anyone. That's right. None of them are impervious to weapons. None of them. None of them are impervious to have their feelings hurt. Yeah, you know, and that's what's cool about the way Quentin Tarantino writes. So yeah, so in Pulp Fiction, we've got the cool Vincent and Jules, who we originally see. You know, we're introduced to them as these super chill gangsters that are just having this cool sort of philosophical conversation about a burger. Um, and that they have these real human moments just like the average human does. Um, even Marcellus, the big bad boss. Yeah. Like I won't spell out what he went through, but yeah, you know, um, yeah. But he has his moment. 
So he's he should be this this almost Mary Sue character, like this tough guy that you just do not want to yeah. mess with. That concern, but you know Bruce Willis survives because of a certain interaction, and yeah. you know where he should have been killed, and because of a human moment. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. So yeah, um, that's um like um it's it's quite graphic, but like mm. it's uh, it's a good scene. Like way that whole thing plays out is really well done um, with, you know, how <laughs> Bruce Willis ends up getting away because yeah, yeah. he does the right thing, you know, and helps this yes. guy who wants to kill him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's like... Yeah, and that's, um, that's Quentin bringing And I love when that element. kind of thing happens, yeah. 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 And I think, like, he, I think he loves when that kind of thing happens and, mm. yeah, I, I enjoy that in his movies. Hmm. So, yeah, so... It's that um, whole thing about, you know, the revision, like what you want to happen. yeah versus what actually like you know when he's re- doing a his- historical movie mm. like he writes what he wanted to happen and yeah i like that <laughs> me too um what else can i say uh about it i guess it's got probably one of the most famous MacGuffins um in film history so for those that are unaware of what a MacGuffin is that's essentially a plot device that is used to push a story forward, but it's never really, you realize that it wasn't really an essential part of the plot in the end, but it was used to push the story forward, but you never really get to figure out what it was. It was just used as kind of a traveling device. So in this one, which has become one of the most famous MacGuffins in film history was the briefcase where they opened it and it was glowing, but we never actually get to figure out what it is. (laughs) Yeah. So in Pulp Fiction, this briefcase glowed when it opened and we don't ever see what is in it. We don't, um, we're just left to speculate. And when Quentin Tarantino has been asked, he goes, there's no real answers to it. He just, he doesn't, <laughs> I don't know if he, he thought of something or not, but you know, fans have speculated. Is it Marcellus's soul, you know, and he wants it back. <laughs> um, did he sell his soul to the devil and it's now in the briefcase and he's trying to buy it back and he, he was always wearing this band-aid on the back of his head and so apparently there's some sort of scripture or something about how the devil takes your soul through the back of your head i don't know if that's uh, true but people have speculated on that and that's why he's got that bandage and apparently the lock code is 666 oh uh, yeah um on the on the briefcase um yeah some people have considered that it might be the diamonds from reservoir dogs which is Oh, I think I've case. heard that before. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't, that wouldn't shine like that. I don't think. Um, <laughs> and some say it's probably just a homage to one of Tarantino's, again, one of his cult favorite films, uh, which is the 1955 noir classic "Kiss Me Deadly," where they carried around a cryptic box that connected to the gates of hell, and when that opened that box, it glowed almost in the same way. Mm. Yeah, but who knows? Um, yeah, mm. I got a question. Yeah, who's the main character? Yeah, that's tricky. Eh? I've, I've thought about that too. I don't know. <laughs> and I think like we were saying with, well, like I said, with Inglourious Basses, how he switches, you mm. know, kind of the lead roles. Like, I don't, there's not really a main character in this, this movie. This one even less so than Inglourious yeah. Basses. I mean, you could probably, I'd probably lean towards oh, Brad Pitt. And then there was an Apex, you know, and, yeah. and Shoshana sort of yeah. like took over. But um, yeah, with this one, you expect it to be, uh, John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, but you know, um, but it's kind of about Bruce Willis's. But then, story, then but you get introduced to the other yeah. plot lines, and then realize, oh, hang on, maybe they're not the main characters. Yeah. Longer. <laughs> I think when you, if if you were to, I don't know, an, an average trivia night for anyone that has seen Pulp Fiction, you asked list the characters in Pulp Fiction you'd probably get like Jules and yeah. um, you, you know you'd get you'd get or list the actors I should say you get John Travolta you get Samuel L. Jackson probably in that order yeah. vice versa and then you'd maybe get Bruce Willis and mm. um, yeah but nah there's not really a yeah that's, yeah. Uh, that's interesting yeah it's, it's, very a, it's clever, a hard one like, to answer yeah it's yeah. very clever uh, a few bits of trivia to close off um, in glory uh, I was going to say Globes, but Pulp, Pulp Fiction. Fiction. <laughs> oh, unless you got more to say on it, or no, no, that's, no, no. that's good. So these are just bits of trivia pulled straight from IMVD. The shot of Vincent pl- plunging the syringe into my, yeah. Mia's chest was filmed by having John Travolta pull the needle out and then running the film backwards. Watch Crazy. carefully, and you'll see a mark on 
her chest disappear when she's revived. Um, the movie only cost eight million to make. The initial budget was because he was still young, a young director too. You know, mm. just done Reservoir Dogs, yeah, but yeah. he wasn't a big name. Uh, the initial budget was reportedly even lower until Bruce Willis was added to the cast. He had a recent string of domestic flops, but was still a box office draw overseas. So another one that is kind of pulling. I guess he had too. He hadn't. Wait, when did this one come out? Ninety four. Ninety four. Oh yeah. Okay. So I'm trying to think of what he had between Die Hard and. Besides the diehards, I guess, yeah. Bruce Willis. Hudson um, Hawk. Yeah, so he had a couple of flops. Hudson Hawk. <laughs> but yeah, five million went to pay the actors and actresses' salaries. The film That's pretty crazy, was already yeah. profitable when its worldwide rights were sold for 11 million. Wow. Or just, well, okay, so that made it back. That was sweet. And then it went on to gross over 200 million at the box office. Um, Quentin Tarantino is quoted as saying that Butch was the one responsible for Keen Vincent's car. Okay. <laughs> Uma Thurman originally turned down the role of, of uh, Mia Wallace. Quentin, Quentin was so desperate to have her as Mia, he ended up reading her the script over the phone, yeah, that's pretty finally funny. convincing her to take on the role. He's just so full of life, Quentin. He just he, he knows what he wants and he just works and works to get it. Mm. Uma Thurman did not actually like the song that was played in the Jack Rabbit Slim's Twist Contests, which is Chuck Berry's You Never Can Tell. She told Quentin about this saying, it does not sound right. Quentin simply replied, trust me, it's perfect. Yeah. Um, See the next one? It's interesting. Um, I actually slid the, oh, yeah. Mr. Blonde, a.k.a. Vic Vega, played by Michael Madsen in Reservoir Dogs. Hey. Yeah. As I read Vic Vega, I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. So, okay, so I better read that out. Mr. Blonde, a.k.a. Vic Vega, played by Michael Madsen in Reservoir Dogs, is the brother of Vincent Vega. Quentin Tarantino even had a spin-off film in development titled Double V Vega, <laughs> which was a prequel to both movies. This film was scrapped because both actors were too old to play younger versions of themselves. <laughs> Although, yeah, and they wouldn't want anyone else to play them. Yeah, he wouldn't, no, it wouldn't work. Ah, how cool is that? That's interesting. Of course, of you know, course. It's funny I when we were talking. connection before. Yeah. No, I mean, we were talking about um, Reservoir Dogs. I pulled up the IMDb and I saw that his name was Vic Vega and I was like, oh. That's funny. That's interesting. And then, yeah. <laughs> but I didn't realize they were actually supposed to be brothers. That's cool. Oh. It was actually Harvey Cartel that convinced Bruce Willis to take part in the film, knowing that Willis had been a big fan of Reservoir Dogs. Uh-huh. Um, Harvey Cartel, eh? He's hmm. done some good things for Tarantino. The F word is used 265 times. <laughs> um, the quote... Yeah. The quote one? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. The quote Jules uses is supposed to be from Ezekiel twenty five seventeen in the Old Testament. In Captain America, the Winter Soldier, when Nick Fury, played by Samuel R. Jackson, stands by the headstone at his grave, the marker reads, The Path of the Righteous Man, Ezekiel twenty five seventeen. That's cool. How cool is that? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, this was one of the first movies to use the internet for advertising. Wow. Uh, the parts of Honey Bunny and Pumpkin were written specifically for Amanda Plummer and Tim Roth. <laughs> yeah. So he just, he must so love good. Tim Roth and he's like, yeah, I got to get this guy. Yeah. Um, Amanda Plummer. So she's uh, Christopher Plummer's daughter. So ah. that's, a, that's, she's got a bit of a pedigree yet. Yeah. Vincent Vega is the only character who is present in every segment of the film. Oh, uh, yeah. Any other cool ones? He dies really unfortunately in, uh, in that movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The role of Butch was originally supposed to be an up-and-coming boxer. Matt Dillon was in talks to play the role, but never committed. Hmm. Quentin Tarantino then changed the role and offered it to Bruce Willis, who was disappointed at not being signed to play Vincent. Uh, so Bruce actually wanted to play Vincent. He would not have made a good Vincent. Nah. Yeah, no, nah, nah. I, couldn't, I couldn't see it. Nah, nah, nah. Jules flipping the table over at the beginning was improvised by Samuel L. Jackson. And Frank... Whaley's reaction was genuine, but they continued with the scene and when it, and uh, it was done in one take. Um, Mickey Rourke was supposed to play Butch, ah. but he turned it down to pursue his boxing career. Oh wow! He, he was going to, yeah, he was trying his hand at boxing or getting back into boxing at the time, and yeah, and he says he regretted it afterward. Mm. Yeah, when he realised what he'd passed up, yeah, he yeah. would have done all right, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, before he'd done all his plastic surgery. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the ninety ninety four Mickey Rock was a lot different to Mickey Rock now. <laughs> and Daniel Day Lewis 
actually wanted the role of Vincent Vega as well. Really? Yeah. Wow. But Anybody Quentin looks. turned him down for John Travolta. Yeah, no, John Travolta, was, John Travolta was definitely the best I for don't the role. Know that, yeah. yeah, and yeah. that's us with the lucky hindsight. He would have had. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, um, I guess to wrap it, it was also ranked number one movie in Entertainment Weekly's The New Classics Movies, which is issue number 1000, July 4th, 2008. So it's definitely a classic, definitely influential, and it is definitely my number one with a bullet, yeah. and your number one as well. That is yeah. Pulp Fiction. No doubt. No doubt, no doubt. And that is our top five or our favorite five Quentin Tarantino films. And all I've got to say is... The Path of the Righteous Man. The Path of the Righteous Man. <laughs> Thanks for having us. This is Tonic Pop. My name is Nate Hammond, and this is Luke, who I haven't thought of, and AKA4 for this episode. <laughs> oh, let's get on to the next one. All right. Yeah. Love you guys. Thank you for joining us. And my name is Nate Hammond. This has been Tonic Pop, and we've been joined by Luke, the something something. Hornsby. I'm just getting back. I'm so disappointed. Take care of the Hornsby. All right. Take care. No, man. Just make sure. Have a good time. Make sure she don't get lonely. Good. Say what again? I dare you. I dare you.